0: Hi, it's Sarah. Sarah Bueno. Conversations with the Wounded Healer. I guess you know that though, right? Because that's why you're here. Hi, hi, hi. Thank you for coming back. I really appreciate everyone who listens. I appreciate all the feedback I get. It's actually very surprising to me that I haven't gotten any negative feedback yet. Maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud because I don't want to invite it, but... Doesn't that mean like once you get haters and critics that you've like finally made it? I don't know, we'll find out. I did want to encourage people, if you like the show, your rating, not only rating, but also writing a review on iTunes can really, really help. My hope is to get some more national speaking gigs this year and to get some really big, awesome, amazing guests. And the best way to do that apparently is to show them that I have a lot of people who care and who listen. So if you feel so inclined, I would so, so, so much appreciate you doing that on your iTunes app or where do Android people do it? I don't even know. All of my things are Mac. So if you don't use a Mac, I can't help you. (laughs) And I digress. But thanks for joining me today. Today's guest is Lola Wright. And Lola is a fierce and loving community leader supporting individual transformation in service of collective awakening. CEO and spiritual director of Bodhi Center, a global center for consciousness, engaging change agents and explorers in Chicago and around the world. She's also the founder of Normal White People, a platform designed to deconstruct racism among white identified people. She's a wild and passionate mom of four. And Lola is a force. I think that's such a great way to describe her, a force for good, a force for love, a force for change. And I think this conversation, i in writing the show notes, I was writing you know, that we talk about the Bible and consciousness and white supremacy and all these big things, but I think she does it in a really accessible way, in a way that isn't so scary. I, you know, historically get really overwhelmed when I think about these sorts of macro ideas and I didn't get scurred. I didn't get scurred when she was talking about it. So I think that's pretty cool. So please, please, please enjoy my conversation with Lola Wright. Hello, Lola. Welcome to Conversations with the Wounded Healer. Hey, I am
1: super excited to be here.
0: Yay, me too. I'm glad we like got the Skype things figured out. I'm a little keyed up. I know you said you're like feeling crazy right now. So like, there's going to be lots of energy in this. I have a feeling.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have a feeling this will be an electric experience.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I guess I can start out telling people how we met. We connected through our mutual friend, Lauren Henley, who her podcast will be airing shortly. So nobody knows her yet while we're recording this, but then they'll know her later. It's like this weird, like time hop mind fuck situation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking to the future from the past. (laughs) And yeah, she said we just needed to meet. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Okay. And we met and I just love when I meet people who, like you said, in electricity, you know, there's just like something between us. And that's how I felt when I met
1: you. I love that. It was totally mutual. And even as I was tuning into, like, in my being, knowing that I was going to be here, I just was feeling a lot of joy and appreciation and excitement. So, thanks for having me.
0: Yay. Well, would you like to tell listeners a little bit more about who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. So, I'm the CEO and spiritual director of a place called Bodhi Chicago which is a center for consciousness and transformation. We do large group gatherings, intimate gatherings, classes, workshops, special events. It's a community that appeals largely to people who want to live with meaning and purpose, that want to expand their experience of aliveness and awakening and don't necessarily want traditional frameworks of religious dogma or Mm -hmm. doctrine. And so it's an unusual place in that it's extremely diverse racially, socioeconomically, gender identity, and especially in a city like Chicago, which has been so strategically segregated. Yes. Most people walk in and they're like, holy smokes, I've never been in an environment like this in the city Mm. of Chicago. That's so cool. Yeah, it is cool. It's really a special place. And... Lots of stuff comes up when you bring yeah. <laughs> lots of different people together, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like kumbaya. It's, you know, people right. rub up against each other. And our premise is that that's actually where the work begins.
0: Oh, my God. I was literally just thinking that.
1: Ah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because if it's kumbaya, you could be spiritually bypassing or not addressing what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yep. Totally agree. So that's sort of one thing that I do. I'm also the founder of a body of work called Normal White People, which Mm -hmm. is a platform for white identified people to develop their racial consciousness and to move into greater awareness around racism in this country and white supremacy in this country. I'm also the mom of four kids that are 21, 19, 10 and seven. I have an incredible partner who he and I are great practitioners of the mundane. Oh, yeah. So I'm like, yeah, I think that's what I'm up to on the planet. I do have a book that I'm working on to come out January of 2020. And I'm excited about that. So lots of different things going on.
0: Yeah. And you and I are kindred spirits in that way, like doing too many (laughs) things at once, but they all need to be done. God damn it. (laughs) Yes. And I just
1: trust that like, it'll all work itself out.
0: So So when we met, you told me your story and how you kind of arrived and just sort of kind of happened upon this leadership position in Bodhi. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I'd love for you to share as much of that as
1: you feel willing to share. Sure. I'll do the reader's digest version. (laughs) Yeah. So I was raised in a very affluent suburb of Chicago until about the age of 13, at which point my parents, who were big socialites in the community, got divorced because my mom revealed she was having a relationship with a woman in the community. And in 1992, (gasps) I was going to Catholic school. That was (laughs) scandalous. Yes, yes. And I was not raised living under a rock. Like it wasn't so much a moral issue for me. It was really just disruptive as a 13 year old Mm -hmm. who's already navigating all the challenges of being 13 and not feeling like I fit in for a variety of reasons. I mean, I'm not a petite human. I'm not a demure person. Mm. There were all these sort of like things stacked against me (laughs) to Mm. fit into like the dominant cultural norms. So as a result of that, my dad moved to the city. I essentially moved with my dad and got hooked up with the Chicago hip hop community in like 93 and went down this rabbit hole of black liberation texts Mm. and got deeply curious in the intersection of race, religion or spirituality and Mm. music. And how that's sort of informing our culture and traditions, et cetera, et cetera. I got pregnant my senior year of high school and sort of hid that from my parents, ended up having a miscarriage, got pregnant swiftly thereafter again. Hmm. I'm clear now that I really had an unconscious commitment hmm. to recreating the experience of family that I felt was lost when my family hmm. got disrupted. Yeah. Yeah. And after that, I just really struggled to experience belonging and community. It had been so central to my family and plenty of dysfunction, its own idiosyncrasies, and it still was what I knew. And so recreated that in relationship with a man who grew up in a very different environment than I did. He was raised in Section 8 housing in Chicago, a black man was one of the founding members of probably the earliest Chicago hip-hop crew, he and I ended up having two kids together. And because that all occurred for me at 18 and I was a freshman in college, it sort of reorganized my trajectory. And he said, look, if you want to do this, I will totally support you, but understand that you're about to experience a lifestyle that I suspect you've not experienced before.
0: That's a kind way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I was super naive. I was like, sure, great. That's no problem. We'll totally do this. You mm-hmm. know? And we moved from Lincoln Park, where my dad had me set up in a doorman building and was paying all my bills. And mm. when he found out that I was pregnant, he said, you know, you have two options here. You can have an abortion and maintain all financial support, mm. or you cannot have an abortion and you'll lose everything. Wow, And I would say he's kept pretty good to his word, my choice of losing everything. And I think that like sometimes when I share that, it's easy to villainize my dad. And what I've come Mm. to understand through my own parenting journey and my own healing journey is that he really was just doing the best that he knew to do. You know, it was like he had a little bit of leverage Mm -hmm. and he was going to try to use it to hopefully correct my path. I have that in air quotes. Right. To what he thought it should look like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I have a lot of compassion. I mean, he is a great practice partner for me in mm. compassion and acceptance. <laughs> <laughs> because Again,
0: uh, a kind way to say things. Yeah. I love it so much. Yeah. We walk
1: on the planet with some pretty distinct differences, but A lot of times people will ask, well, was your dad's issue the fact that your daughter was black? And I said, Mm. I I actually would say the bigger issue for my dad was class. My dad's issue was more about the fact that I was making my life very difficult and had hooked up with someone who had very little means. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, fast forward. I was a vocalist at the time, expecting to pursue a singing career. That swiftly changed. I realized business was probably a more viable option if I wanted to be able to support myself. Mm-hmm. I looked at the life that I was raised in and sort of modeled my choices after that, which was yeah. like, okay, it appears that people go into investment banking hmm. and consulting. And mm. while I don't have a degree, I know how to play this game very well. Mm. And so I'm going to use my high level of emotional intelligence and incredible social skills to make my way in this sort of corporate world. Mm. And I did that for a number of years. And it was always a struggle. I mean, it was just like I had relative level of success, but it just was so inauthentic. for Yeah, yeah. I started going to Bodhi as a community member in 2005, and it was like a big glass of water. It was like, Mm. holy smokes, where has this been all my life? This is exactly what I have wanted, needed. This is how I view the world. And I just started taking classes and started Mm. volunteering and got really plugged in. And then met my husband there in 2007 left Bank of America in 2012, and basically said to my husband, like, look, so just a little sidebar, mm-hmm. my older children's father and I parted ways, lots of stories that could be explored there. But <laughs> <laughs> so I'm now a single mom, I meet my husband in 2007 at Bodie. In 2012, I leave Bank of America, just feeling like I would rather live in a cardboard box than yeah. do this life. And Bodhi was looking for a director of youth and family, and I decided to pursue it. And within a year and a half, a variety of things occurred. I moved through a series of roles, the founder left, and ultimately I became the CEO and spiritual director. And it was just a demonstration of like my experience. When you listen to your intuition, your soul, your gut, whatever you want to call it, and you follow that, things can happen that you'd never be able to anticipate.
0: Can I stop you there for just a second cuz and I'm sure you've seen this meme before that's maybe you manifested it or maybe it's white privilege right cuz I think <laughs> I think that's important to look at right because I'm curious to what extent like Mishera who you talked about listening to her interview I feel like Mishera has manifested so much in her life and she's black and I'm guessing that it probably felt more arduous for her than it has for us. But I'm not even really asking a pointed question, but I just kind of want to like talk about your thoughts on that.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there are so many layers to that. Right. So I would say that I spent a number of years on welfare after my dad cut me off. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I don't always share that part of my story because what I'm clear about is that my experience of being on welfare and other people's experiences of being on welfare are very different. Like Hmm. by that, I mean, I was raised in a hyper affluent environment. I understood the way some systems were designed. I also had access to relationships that while they weren't necessarily like running to support me, I could at least tap into them, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so I mean, there are a couple of things that happened. Number one, when it was revealed that I was pregnant, there was some feedback that I got from my parents' social community Mm. that felt less than affirming. And so I made a decision in my being that I would never ask anyone for help ever. And like, I thought there was some kind of nobility in that. Right. This was like such a hard way to live for so many years. Mm. So I have had the experience of being poor, raising kids on my own, navigating a relationship that was riddled with addiction and violence mm-hmm. and you know, lots of issues. And it's not lost on me that I still came from a family with mm-hmm. a giant amount of access. Mm-hmm. So I think all of it's true. You know right, what I mean? Right. Like, I think that we have to be mindful not to stack rank. People struggle. Yes, because I just think there's no winning there. I mean, and that doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge people's lived experiences. Right. The experience that my children's father had growing up, watching his mom's best friend be shot and killed, Mm -hmm. you know, in a drug deal gone bad. Like I didn't have that kind of lived experience, but it's all relative. Mm -hmm. Like the experience that I had growing up felt deeply traumatic when all Mm -hmm. of a sudden ostracized for my community mm-hmm. because of a whole set of moral judgments around my parents' divorce. You know what I mean? Like right. they don't invalidate each other. All of it can exist. Right.
0: I don't understand why black and white thinking is like the default. I don't know if it's just the way that our brains are wired or if that's more social conditioning, but right. Like the experience of having trauma and having grown from that trauma, you can simultaneously not like that that happened to you and appreciate that that happened to you. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm always trying with my clients to help like widen that gray space, but it's Mm -hmm. for some people, it's just a gargantuan struggle for them to get out of that. And I don't know where that comes from.
1: Well, I think about like, I'm not a religious person. I relate to myself as a master practitioner of awareness. And
0: that's the title of this episode. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Uh,
1: I even have some aversion to calling myself spiritual, although I do identify as deeply spiritual, but I feel like Mm. that term is thrown around so loosely that I don't even think people know what they mean when they're saying that. That Right. Right. I think that what you just, articulated can be difficult to consider without a spiritual framework. Yeah, you're so right. Difficult to make Mm -hmm. sense of the struggles that we've each experienced Mm -hmm. if there's not a greater context, like if we're experiencing all of life in the literal realm, in the relative realm, and not understanding sort of a more cosmic interpretation it is like very depressing. I mean, people yes. have said to me like, how do you know God exists? And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, first of all, let's make sure we're talking about the same thing when we use that word, God, right? Usually I'm not talking about the same thing when mm-hmm. I hear people use that word, right? But pre- presuming we are, if for no other reason, the notion of being so fatalistic, as if to suggest that I'm existing in a random universe, Mm -hmm. and that there is nothing beyond my five sensory perception is so depressing. I refuse to believe that. Agreed. That's (laughs) the only reason that's enough for me. Right.
0: Yeah. Sometimes people are like, well, how can you believe in the afterlife or whatever? And I'm like, I want it to be true. It's not like a fantasy. I've done some reading on it and, you know, studied it in some way since my parents passed on. But it makes me feel better to believe that our soul continues after this lifetime Mm -hmm. and potentially goes into another body like that sounds fucking awesome. Sign Mm -hmm. me up. (laughs) <laughs> mm. I love the, it. the other way does sound depressing. And I see some friends who struggle with getting on board with an idea of spirituality and that they're, that we're interconnected and that there's meaning and yeah, they're fucking depressed.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's sort of a downer. Yeah. I mean, the thing is you don't breathe yourself. Something breathes you mm. like you don't literally sit here and say to yourself, okay, I'm going to effort on breathing now. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, mm-hmm. there are times when you may be congested, or you might struggle with asthma or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, there is some life force energy that's right. moving through you. Right. And for yes. those who rely heavily on science, and I'm certainly a huge advocate of science, there's mm-hmm. plenty of science to back up mm-hmm. the visible field of awareness.
0: Yep, absolutely. Because I like to think of it as like, When I explain Reiki to people, I'm like, so if you take your phone and there's the hardware of the actual like phone itself, and then there's the software, there's the apps and shit that work, you need energy and Mm -hmm. that's the battery. And I feel like that's what our energy is. Like that's what actually makes us awake and alive. Mm -hmm. And I think scientists are trying to find like, where is the part of the brain that is what Is right, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I always like to think too like science is fantastic, and thank god we have it for all the advances that we have for humankind and whatnot. But just because science hasn't figured out how to study it yet, doesn't mean it's not true,
1: yeah. And you know, science is studying consciousness, there Mm are plenty of quantum physicists Mm -hmm. and astrophysicists and really brilliant people. I mean, I appreciate science, I am not a science buff, but I think more important for me, anyway. More important than the science is my lived experience. Mm -hmm. Like, I have had multiple experiences where the mystery of life was involved. Like, I cannot Mm -hmm. just rely on my cognitive ability to understand how and why something occurred. Like, I've had experiences of grace Mm -hmm. that I can't articulate how or why. And they were right on time. And I'm deeply grateful. And that's enough for me to trust Mm -hmm. that there is something intrinsically connected that is moving and breathing and having its way in through and as me and all around me that is Mm -hmm. working for me. And that's not unique to me. Right, That exists in each of us. Mm -hmm. Have you
0: watched the OA? No, I don't know. Oh my God. Watch it immediately. Do you have Netflix?
1: Yes. So it's a show. Okay. I don't
0: know it. The, and then just
1: the letters O-A- you're gonna poop. Oh, your... oh, the OA. I have heard about this. Oh, My, Lola. my team at Bodhi has been talking about this.
0: It's so good. It's funny because I was at the gym this morning and the instructor was like, Oh, what are people watching? And you know, people like, ah, oh, stupid shit, this, stupid shit that. And I was like, the OA. And <laughs> someone looks at me and she's like, It's so weird. And I was like, that sucks that people are just thinking it's weird because it's about consciousness. It's about Mm -hmm. expanding consciousness. It's about the soul. It's about interconnectedness. It is Mm -hmm. fucking spiritual as fuck. And I think that Britt Marling, who is like the creator and the star, I think she is a fucking enlightened being and is shining her beautiful, sunshiny rays down on all of us. And there's some people who are getting the message. And then there are people who are thinking it's weird. And I, <laughs> I just want everyone to get it because it's so just everything. It's everything. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I will just say, like even hearing that I feel so encouraged by that. I mean, I, I was mm-hmm. on Instagram the other day and I'll go down these sort of rabbit holes of like people yeah. I follow, and they'll post something and I'm like, Oh my gosh, who is that brilliant human that created that or whatever. Yeah. And I'm just like, I feel like I am swimming in a sea of brilliance. I mean, Mm -hmm. so I am like as fatalistic as I can hear people get around the state of this country, the state of the planet. While I absolutely know that there is deep work to be done to take responsibility for the state of things, I am wildly encouraged. I mean, I just Mm -hmm. got off a two hour call with Angel Kyoto Williams, who is the author of Radical Dharma. And she's a, a Buddhist priest and mm. is looking at the transformation of race and has basically developed mm. like a 12-year plan to uh, eradicate unless. or to at least severely disrupt white supremacy. And I'm, <gasps> Radical I mean, dharma? Yeah. I mean, okay. it's, it's, I, I read this book a few years ago and it was just like, it's a game changer. Shit. And it's through the lens of black queer people. And wow. it's very, very powerful. And so- there were four hundred people from all over the world mm. at noon on a Thursday on this call, and they're doing another one tonight at nine. So wow. I'm just like I'm really encouraged. I think that mm-hmm. like not to get off course, but the absurdity that is our political landscape today. Mm-hmm is one of the most deeply provoking and necessary things to have occurred. And sure, could we have learned some of these lessons a more gentle way? Yes, but we didn't. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right apparently we wanted to do this like really intense boot camp. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of people that have been sitting out of the conversation because they could. Mm-hmm. And now right, here right. we are called to task. So.
0: And I truly feel like I'm one of those people, like I'd see things on Facebook and I had convinced myself for a period of time that I wasn't educated enough to like weigh in. And it finally occurred to me, I have to fucking educate myself. I was reading, oh God, I can't remember the name of the book, but I was reading a book and this black woman was talking about her upbringing and telling a story. And there was a white woman who had learned some things about lynchings and whatnot. And she said, it's no longer an option for me to not participate in this. Mm. And that was a wake up call for me. Like, yeah, there's no excuse
1: anymore. You know? Yeah. I oftentimes will interact with white identified people who are like, well just tell me what to do. And well, I'm happy to support you, one, in Mm -hmm. their, you know, development of their consciousness. When I was 13 and started looking at the world around me and noticing very clear inequities and Mm -hmm. injustice, I picked up books. Right. And that was at 13. So yeah. And I realized that I may have been unique in that regard, but surely at Mm -hmm. 30 or 40 or 50, You Mm -hmm. could exercise some degree of curiosity. I mean, we have Google today. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Like, come on. Right. And I want to be mindful because I think that especially around the conversation of race, there's so much blame and shame that gets activated. Yes. That I'm really mindful to not. And by the way, I don't avoid that all that well myself sometimes, Mm -hmm. but I'm just noticing It's easy to make light of this stuff. And if someone is listening and they are white identified Mm -hmm. and they want to develop their racial consciousness, Mm -hmm. there are lots of resources. And Mm -hmm. I want to appreciate you for your willingness. And I want to encourage you to get busy.
0: One of the things, because I feel like I've started this journey relatively recently, and I'm lucky enough to have a friend who is a person of color and has also had a lot of training in anti-racism and has been willing to field my (laughs) What have at times been really stupid questions, but she's never made me feel stupid or shameful, which has really helped. But a couple of things that I've done is following black women activists Mm -hmm. like Erica Hart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love her. And of course, Rachel Cargill. And that has absolutely activated my shame around it because they're calling out white women who are basically tone policing and saying that they shouldn't be angry, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I've heard myself say those things in my head. And this is why, you know, I was always afraid to engage because I didn't know what to say. But now I'm so grateful. You know, I do feel sorry for the women who are getting blasted. But at the same time, I, I appreciate the lesson and being able to see firsthand how harmful this is. And since I started that, that has activated my lens in a different way in the world. Yeah. And also the book, White Fragility. It's a good one. I think that's a really, really good one.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the challenges to these conversations occurring on social media is that it's very easy to sever oneself from our yeah. shared humanity. Yeah. And so, one of the things I really appreciate about Angel Kyoto Williams' work and the work of Radical Dharma is they're really inviting the conversation to transcend the call-out culture practices. And my feeling is that like, and I see this a lot in my work at Bodhi, and it's been really deeply healing for me to because it's such a beautiful mirror and reflection mm-hmm. of myself. So long as we are screaming at one another, mm-hmm. solution will never emerge. Right. And it doesn't matter how highly aligned we may be or how, quote unquote, right you may be. Mm-hmm. It's the same practice from a different perspective. hmm. Yep. And so my appetite has waned for some of the stuff on social media just because yeah. here's the bottom line. I've shouted at white people for 20 <laughs> yeah. years and what I've come to learn is like it's not very effective. <laughs> Like I did. Yes. It. And, and it turns out that they don't respond well to it. Right. You know, right. And <laughs> the reason that is, is because nobody yeah. likes to get shouted at, even right. if your perspective is right. Right. I'm trying to be more mindful in the practice mm-hmm. so that I don't lose people to mm-hmm. their own trauma, their right. own shock. Right. Because there is a lot of white pain in this race conversation, you know. Right. And the challenge is that white people can feel like they can opt out of it. Right. So to me, it's like threading a needle. It's like, how do you put (laughs) a healthy amount of pressure without putting people into like a trauma state? And then, you know, white fragility is real. I mean, it's not real like capital R, but it's like, White people have been conditioned to be in a fragile state around the topic of race. Yes, yes. And so to hit people over the head, in my experience, it doesn't work.
0: And to go back to the idea of that, like white pain and white fragility, I think the underlying message that I hear when people kind of pull that card is, well, what about my pain? Does that mean my pain isn't real? And that goes back to this idea of comparison of pain, like whose suffering is worse, And I completely agree with you about shouting at people doesn't work. And I'm sure you would agree with this, too. I think that the people who are shouting
1: deserve to get to shout. I totally agree with that. And I would just add, like, the misnomer is nobody's saying your pain is not real. Right. We're actually trying to have a specific conversation Mm -hmm. about the impact Mm -hmm. of racism in America, which is symptomatic Mm -hmm. of white supremacy. It actually has nothing to do with have you experienced pain in your life? Of course, you're a right. Flipping human, right? We're just having a specific conversation around the impact mm-hmm. of whiteness in culture, society, systems and structures. So I'm like, I don't even know if Sarah intended on this being a whole race conversation. No, I
0: didn't. <laughs> okay,
1: but here we are.
0: Yeah. And I think selfishly, it speaks to what I'm really curious about right now for myself and for the world. And The feedback that I've gotten from people who have listened to Mishara's conversation or other conversations where we've talked about these hard topics, I have a therapist on staff who is a person of color and can also pass as a white person. It looks like she's just kind of tan. And she texted me. She's like, I was just weeping. Like, thank you for doing this. And I trust that the people who need to hear this message are the people who are going to be listening and You know, if people don't like it, stop listening. (laughs) I (laughs) I think there are plenty of people out there who care.
1: There are. And what I know to be true is that white people actually really do want to figure this thing out and figure out what has occurred in our psyche that has us be so ill equipped to have this conversation. Like, that's been systematic, Mm -hmm. that's been deliberate, that's been designed. And I know that there are white people that are willing and mm-hmm. ready to have the uncomfortable exploration and to do the deep work. Mm-hmm. I absolutely know that that exists. I mean, yeah, I work with them. So I know that that exists. And it's an imperfect process.
0: Yeah. Well, let me know when you want me to come in and help do some of the navigating around shame. Mm-hmm. I can help with all that. <laughs> I love that. I got shame down. So let's shift to the conversation about being a healer.
1: What what do you think about that? It's so funny. I would say I am an invitation Hmm. to one's internal process to be their own healer. So Mm -hmm. the only one I am a healer of is my own internal state. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite philosophers is a guy named Ernest Holmes. And he says, there is nothing to be healed, only God to be revealed. And if the word God is triggering for you, you could say there's nothing to be healed, only love to be revealed, only the presence to be revealed. Like, Mm. and the premise of that statement is that there is an aspect to your being that has never been hurt, harmed or hindered. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in fact, all hurt or all trauma or all abuse or whatever has come out of Mm. just a fractured relationship to love. Yes. And so I appreciate the commitment to one's own healing. Mm -hmm. And I love the word restoration. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. I am whole. I am holy and I've had some stuff happen and it's hurt and it's been painful and I can heal the parts of myself that have forgotten their Mm -hmm. inherent whole and holy nature.
0: Mm. I just want to let that reverberate for a second. Because that was fucking deep, man. But so true. And I think that's why, in particular, I'm quite drawn to Buddhism because that's what it stems from, right? Like we're just uncovering the diamond within each of us instead of reaching
1: outside of self to be absolved of our sins, right? I would actually say that if you look at the mystical interpretation of virtually every world tradition, that is at the core of it.
0: Yeah, yeah how did christianity like twist it and fuck it up then to be all about sin? <laughs> Re- I mean, right? Like and this is uh, this is not like oh christianity's bad, it's just like people's practice uh-huh. can be extraordinarily harmful. But I guess like from what i understand and i am not a religious scholar, you probably know quite a bit more than i do, but it's that the church really did want to control people and it's easy to control people with shame. If you make mm-hmm. people feel like they're not good enough and they need something outside,
1: then that's how you control them. Yeah, I mean, oh my goodness. This right here is many episodes, but- i uh, will have to do another. <laughs> so what I would say is that my feeling is that sacred texts, specifically the Christian Bible, have been largely misinterpreted. They have lost historical context, mm-hmm. linguistic context. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of stuff that's not being accounted for when we're reading these sacred texts, mm-hmm. not to mention the fact that they were written many, many years after the events of which they speak, Right. not to mention the fact that they're written by a very privileged class of people. Like there's so many things. Mm-hmm. If you look at what Qualifies as a mythological body of work, the Bible actually exceeds that of Greek mythology.
0: Oh, how interesting. My mom would be so pissed to hear that. <laughs> Good thing she's dead.
1: <laughs> yep. So I think part of the challenge is like, because when we are not conscious of our higher self, we mm-hmm. sort of default into our survival state. And Mm -hmm. that can be very sort of located in our fear center. And then we have to go with a very literal interpretation because Mm -hmm. it creates the illusion of safety. Mm -hmm. But there's all kinds of mess. Because actually the interpretation that I take of Christianity – although i don't i don't identify as christian really from a political perspective like mm-hmm. it's that's a political statement for me mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. that the, the life and the work and the body and the contribution of master teacher jesus of nazareth a brown skinned mm-hmm. rabbi like what that man stood for mm-hmm. was extraordinary he lived right. at a time of roman occupation in a time where the empire was putting out like hundreds of laws to catch people that we would now call like directly affected or marginalized people. Hmm. And he basically said, look, we have to go within. We have to look at the presence, the I am presence that is at the center of your being, because that's where your agency is going to be found. If you look out here to the circumstances and conditions of life, you're screwed. I mean, that's basically what he was talking about. Right speaking in metaphor. Mm -hmm. And then we got all kinds of crazy and took it into some literal, he said, the kingdom of God is upon us. I am the way, the truth and the life. He wasn't talking about I am Jesus. He was talking about I am, which had a scriptural context of your higher self, your spiritual Mm -hmm. nature. He wasn't saying me. And there's just a lot of nuance that's gotten lost. So one of my great teachers, scholars that I look to is Howard Thurman, who was one of the teachers of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, among many others. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. Mm. And I just recommend anybody who's interested in exploring a liberatory context for the life of Jesus, I highly Mm. recommend checking that book out. I'd also recommend... There are lots of books on the metaphysical interpretations of Jesus as opposed to the Mm -hmm. literal interpretations of Jesus, like This Thing Called You by Ernest Holmes. There are lots of books that you could check out that could help to unravel, you know, not to make everything sort of point back to white supremacy, but there's lots Mm -hmm. of, I mean, I could make a whole case around, I mean, part of the reason for me, it's a political decision to have at the age of 13 laid down the identity of Christian mm-hmm. is because I have a perspective, it's just my perspective, not right, of the impact of Christianity, mm-hmm. colonialism, institutionalized racism. These things are all interrelated. So Absolutely. I digress, but <laughs> the life Jesus was amazing. I think we can celebrate him. And by the way, by the time Howard Thurman, who was a theologian, had spent his life as a deeply devoted Christian, by the time his life was ending, he basically made a strong critique of the state of Christianity in this country and said, I am a follower of Jesus. I don't know that I can comfortably call myself a Christian because I am so out of alignment with the institution and the organization. Mm.
0: God, there's so much I want to say right now. But one of the things that's just making me think like personally, I always was like, yeah, yeah, Jesus. And I'm just realizing now how my reaction to my mother's interpretation of Jesus, that's why I wasn't into it.
1: Yeah. And and, yeah.
0: And I've heard a lot of people talk about Jesus as a mystic and, you know, putting like Jesus and Buddha and who's the other one that I'm not thinking of right now, but somebody else super important. Um, And like as enlightened (laughs) beings all in the same camp. And that makes so much sense. But since we're almost out of time. Well, can I just say
1: one one thing about that? Yeah. One of the contributions I hope to make through the work I get to do at Bodhi and anyone that I interact with is to remind us that you are your own personal mystic master, saint, and sage, that we are living at a time where we cannot continue to outsource our power, security, approval, Mm -hmm. safety, control, separation, oneness to someone or something there is a presence that is at the center of your being. Be your own Jesus. Be your own Mm. Buddha. Be your own Krishna. Be your own Nelson Mandela. Be your own Mother Mm -hmm. Teresa. Like you are the one, baby. Yeah. So I just know that awakening is for the many, not the few.
0: Yeah. And speaking of Jesus, how do you feel about the term wounded healer?
1: I am comfortable with it so long as we remember that, It's not the truth of who you are. Mm. Like we've all gone through some stuff and that like around the idea of Jesus. Exactly. And the idea of the resurrection was that he transcended Mm -hmm. the limitations of the flesh. And Mm -hmm. he said, even in this experience of being crucified, I still understand my spiritual nature, my eternal life, my immortal Mm -hmm. self. And so it would be absurd for us to say that he was not wounded by the nails that went through Mm -hmm, his hands. mm -hmm. I mean, like, I think that's real clear, you know, (laughs) (laughs) he was a wounded healer, right? Right. Yeah. And it's not the truth of who he was, like, or who he is or who we each are. There's an aspect to your being that has never been hurt, harmed or hindered. Don't spiritually bypass Mm -hmm. your wounds. Right. And just remember that there's more to you than your wounds.
0: Right. (sighs) I wish I could spend more time with you. we'll
1: let's do it again.
0: (sighs) I know. I just like feel like a 15-year-old girl sitting on my bed, like talking to my phone to my best friend. I love that. Yeah. I just resonate is always the word. Mm. But I think there's something happening right now. And I'm just really excited to have crossed paths with you and to become friends.
1: Mm, I love that. Me too. I feel very, very grateful for that. Mm.
0: Well, before we close out, is there anything else you want to share with listeners that, I mean, we talked about the Bible, Jesus, white supremacy. What else is left?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. Don't forget to love. Yeah. Like the stuff can feel all consuming and if you are not tending to your well-being to your self-love to your care to your meditation practice whatever you do to restore yourself be mindful of that
0: mhm all right well on that note i'll just i'll just thank you again for being here today i love this i can't wait to put it out into the world me too yay <laughs> Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lola as much as I did. And for more information about Lola, you can visit us at www.headhearttherapy.com podcast. As always, thank you to the Creative Imposter Studios for editing. Thank you to Liam O'Donnell for the album art and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. Bye-bye.